I've got fever in my head, I've got chills to my bones I thought I had COVID, but the test says I'm wrong I'm sweating it out, I've soaked my pajamas I'm covered in spots, it's driving me bananas And the zookeeper, he want me to keep back I should have known that the spots on their arms could do me some harm And now I think I might be infected I'll tell you why I don't like monkeys I'll tell you why I don't like monkeys I'll tell you why I don't like monkeys It's because they weed on me Yes, the world's gone mad It's Wednesday, the 25th of May, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is the Hot Topics Podcast from NB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker, here to once again take you through the next 20 minutes or so on the latest news and research relevant to us in general practice. Today, of course, we have to think a little bit about monkeypox, a condition that's been on our minds for the last couple of weeks, which has never been on our minds before. Then we're going to have a think about some research, and we're going to look at a BMJ article on how we can improve mobility in older people, a BJGP analysis article on preventative medicine, and then a New England Journal of Medicine paper about managing mild chronic hypertension in pregnancy and the effects that that can have on maternal and fetal outcomes. Let's kick off with monkeypox then. That's a curved ball, isn't it? Just to add a bit of spice into your day. Here, does your patient have monkeypox? Could you get monkeypox? What's monkeypox going to do? It made me think what other animals might give me an infection. I saw a guy with an orf once. I was doing a stint as a locum in a quite rural area and it was on a farmer's finger. I will confess I had to do a bit of googling to get the diagnosis for that one. Up to that point, my regular clientele of central Oxford patrons rarely had any ovine contact. Although it did remind me of a story of a vet friend of mine down in Devon who met a guy who caught cowpox off of spending too much time with cows udders. I didn't go into too much detail there. What what happens in the country stays in the country. But if there's a lesson to be learned from this, it's probably don't get too close to animals. Unfortunately for monkeys, they've got a bit of a bad reputation right now and it's a little bit unfair. So the majority of cases of monkey pox originate from the Democratic Republic of Congo or Nigeria. Most of the Um, outbreaks that we've seen over the years which have admittedly been really pretty small and self-contained they're almost always linked with travel to these areas but it's not really monkeys that are doing most of the spreading so in fact if you look at the world health organization's information about monkeypox there's a whole range of different animals that if infected could potentially um, provide zoonotic transmission onto humans so monkeys are actually quite far down the list you've got tree squirrels rope squirrels I don't know what a rope squirrel is um, a Gambian poached rat I would have thought if you'd have cooked a rat probably they're not going to be infected anymore but I don't know what do I know um, door mice several different species of monkey it says and others 
And although they don't really know what the natural reservoir is for this infection, they think that rodents are the most likely cause. Probably the worst thing that could happen then in the UK would be for Ratty to go and get monkeypox and start spreading it around the tube. Now, the good news about monkeypox is that human-to-human -human transmission is actually pretty hard. So you can get it from the lesions. They're infective until they've scabbed over, just like with chickenpox. Uh, the virus can um, contaminate objects such as clothes and bedding, and it could be transmitted that way or from close contact with respiratory secretions, but actually they suggest that you need prolonged face-to-face -face contact with those um, droplet respiratory particles to actually get infected. So the chance of us as healthcare workers getting monkeypox in that manner is actually really low, and especially seen as we're pretty much all wearing masks still, the, the chances are really slim. Learning point for me, if someone's got a funky-looking rash, I'm putting gloves on. Don't go straight in there with your fingernails and start picking at it to see what happens. The incubation period can be quite prolonged from 5 to 21 days and then typically you start off with the systemic features, fever, headache, lymphadenopathy, back pain, myalgia um, and so forth and then you get the um, the skin eruption one to three days after you've got the fever. Typically, the rash affects the face and the extremities more than the trunk. Plus, mucous membranes like in the mouth, the genitalia, the conjunctiva can be affected as well. Yeah, you can get it on the cornea. That would be pretty unpleasant. And the rash evolves from macules to papules, then to vesicles filled with clear fluid, pustules with yellowish fluid in, and then they crust, uh, dry up and fall off. And apparently that process takes two to four weeks or so. There's a bit of disconnect in terms of prognosis from the literature that's out there. The NHS and government message is that monkeypox is a mild self-limiting illness. And that's definitely true for the vast majority of people. But the WHO do say that there's a case fatality rate of around 0 to 11%. And more recently, it's been around 3 to 6%. That's probably based around data on outbreaks in countries which have a less developed health system than we do. So the chances of getting really sick with monkeypox is pretty low in the UK. Severe cases are more likely to happen in um, young children and of course the immunocompromised. Thankfully there are a number of treatments so you can have the smallpox vaccine or an antiviral called cydofovir or a medication called tecovirimat. Yeah, you can see I don't use these ones very often. Those last two options are interesting because according to the CDC website, there's no data available on the effectiveness of cydofovir in treating human cases of monkeypox. But you'll be pleased to hear, if you do ever have to be administered it, that it does have proven activity against pox viruses in vitro and in animal studies. The tech, um, tecovirimat, which seems to, in some places, only have a designation of ST-246, also has no data on effectiveness in human. But you'll be pleased to hear there are studies on a variety of animal species indicating that it can be helpful in treating orthopox virus-induced disease. Well, that is reassuring. On the positive side, the smallpox va vaccine actually seems to be pretty effective. So you can use it pre or post exposure and has 85% efficacy at preventing monkeypox. I know which one I'd be going for. 
as of the 24th of May, we're up to 71 cases in the UK. So 70 in England, one in Scotland, none in Wales, none in Northern Ireland. And what this means is most of us are never going to see monkeypox. What we probably will see is a lot of parents worried that their kids who have chickenpox may have monkeypox. I guess we keep an open mind. And then the other group we really need to be aware about is adults who might have chickenpox when they've already had chickenpox. Hmm, be suspicious. All right, that's enough about monkeypox. Let's return to most of our realities and think about frail older people. I was chatting to a patient yesterday in, she's in her late 70s, who was saying how she was becoming more unsteady on her feet. Her balance seemed to be deteriorating. That was, she'd, she'd not had a fall, but she was becoming very anxious about the possibility. And that meant that she was subsequently doing less activity. And many people, as they get older, as they develop some sarcopenia, as they become more frail, they get trapped in this vicious spiral of um, reducing mobility. So this new paper published in the BMJ wanted to look at whether a multi-component intervention based on physical activity with technological support and nutrition counselling might prevent mobility disability in older people with physical frailty and sarcopenia. This multi-component intervention comprised of moderate intensity physical activity twice weekly at a a dedicated centre and then up to four times weekly at home. The activities included aerobic, strength, flexibility and balance exercises, although there was an emphasis on simply walking. The technology part comes from the use of a device called the ActivePal, which is, it looks a bit like a fancy step counter. It's used in lots of research studies where they um, check what's happening with exercise and activity and it can tell apparently how much time people spend lying, sitting, standing and stepping and they measured what people were doing at a baseline and then they measured it further into the study as well to get an idea about the level of activity that people were doing. The nutritional component was an individualised nutritional assessment and prescription of personalised dietary plan to try and keep people's energy levels up and particularly a focus on their daily protein intake. This was a randomised controlled trial. They recruited one and a half thousand participants across 11 European countries. And so they were either randomised into this multi-component intervention or the control group had education on healthy ageing once a month. And then they um, continued the interventions and follow up for up to 36 months. The primary outcome was the ability to walk 400 metres in less than 15 minutes and the results showed that 47% of the multi-component intervention group failed to be able to do that by the end of the study but the control group did worse with 53% being unable to make that distance. So a 6% absolute risk reduction, a statistically significant result how clinically significant is this? Well, I guess if you're one of those 6%, then actually that's quite positive. But it doesn't feel like a game changer, particularly for the amount of effort that's been required for this intervention. The linked editorial is positive about this research, saying that it provides compelling evidence that mobility in the community can be preserved amongst vulnerable older people. But it also highlights the challenges of translating this type of research into real world clinical practice. Making it as simple as possible is really important. 
the editorial notes that it appears the nutritional component made little difference to uh, to the patients and actually is quite a time-consuming and costly part of the intervention. So if you strip that out and focus on the structured physical activity, that does make things better and even more so when you realise that walking is the primary modality. It seems to me that it's good to know that you can take people with sarcopenia and frailty and you can drag them back up to um, to a place where they do have improved mobility and independence. It also seems to me that prevention is clearly better than a cure. But how often do we really take the time to explain to our patients the importance of doing some of these lifestyle or physical measures to maintain their health and independence. And this brings me back to a fascinating article in the May edition of the BJGP on prevention in practice. Why is it neglected and what can we do? This comes from um, two authors, Paul Evyard, who's a professor of behavioural medicine at Oxford, and Susan Jebb, who is a professor of diet and population health and one of the lead, uh, one of the world's leading experts in this area. In this article, and it is a fascinating article, it's well worth reading if you can, I'll link it in the podcast description. And they discussed their observations around the fact that clinicians, not just in general practice, but in all aspects of healthcare, are not great at intervening opportunistically for patients who demonstrate lifestyle risk factors for serious disease in the future. Even when a patient is presenting with a disease linked directly to that risk factor. And furthermore, when we do intervene, the intervention we're delivering is often not one that is actually the most effective. Of course, all the usual barriers apply, principally time. But actually, research shows that there's a range of other factors which are also important here. For example, there are perceived differences in the value of interventions that we may deliver. So if you're treating someone with hypertension, you might assign a greater value to if you're prescribing drugs to that individual. After all, you need to be a professional who can prescribe to to deliver that. Whereas telling someone that they should um, maybe try and do a bit more exercise, lose weight if they can, or reduce their salt intake is something that the individual could do for themselves without actually needing a clinician and therefore is potentially perceived as a lower value intervention. Not from the patient's perspective, but from ours. Another example is the prestige hierarchy. We perceive certain diseases as more important or maybe even more worthy of our attention than others. No one's going to argue that someone with a brain tumour needs a lot of support, but many clinicians might feel quite differently about a patient with obesity. And that leads into the third issue, which is stigma against patients with certain conditions, particularly something like obesity. We may view that as something which is a patient has brought on themselves, despite the fact we've got growing understanding around the genetic and neurological basis for um, those behaviours, plus the issues around marketing of food and the the idea that we have free choice is actually a fallacy. How can we improve on this? Well, the first thing to do is just recognise that these are all issues and get us to examine the value system within medicine. The second thing we can do is just 
change the way we deliver a preventative interaction. So we tend to focus on trying to change behaviour. So we might advise someone, for instance, to stop smoking. But actually, they found that although that can make a little bit of a difference, it's much more effective if you offer them support to achieve that goal. So refer them to a smoking cessation clinic, for instance. Not only is it easier for us, it's better for the patient. It's the double win. That's the big learning point for me from this paper. Lastly, we're going to have a think about a New England Journal of Medicine paper examining uh, pregnant women with mild chronic hypertension and the impact of antihypertensive therapy. We have established national guidelines in this area. NICE recommends if a pregnant female has blood pressure of over 140, over 90, that they should receive pharmacological therapy. This will seem like a very normal idea to all of us. Leaving a patient with blood pressure higher than that during pregnancy would make me feel extremely uncomfortable. But actually, this management is not without its controversy. And as the New England Journal of Medicine points out, the benefits and safety of the treatment of mild chronic hypertension during pregnancy are uncertain. And there is a particular concern about the use of antihypertensives, lowering blood pressure and uh, adversely affecting fetal growth. In this randomised trial then, they took women who had mild chronic hypertension, singleton fetus pregnancies and a gestation of less than 23 days and randomised them to either have antihypertensive therapy as we would commonly prescribe or no treatment unless their blood pressure went over 160 um, over 105. I think that threshold would make many of our toes curl. The primary outcome they were looking for was a composite of preeclampsia with severe features, a medically indicated preterm birth at less than 35 weeks, placental abruption or fetal or neonatal death. They also looked at the safety of either intervention and the primary focus here was on the gestational weight. From the 2,400 women that were enrolled in this study, they very clearly demonstrated that the active treatment group did better than the control group. So when they were looking at that primary outcome event, that composite of many different features, the incidence was 30% in the treatment group and 37% in the control group. A statistically significant finding and I would say a clinically important finding as well. Hypertension management aiming to get that blood pressure below 140 over 90 came out top. Are there any downsides for the mother or the baby? Well they found no difference in serious maternal complications, the birth weights were the same and the incidence of severe neonatal complications was lower in the treatment group. What can we learn from this? Well, we need to keep checking those pregnant women's blood pressures. And if they're up, don't ignore it. That'll do for the podcast today. But if you do want more, it's been a really busy few weeks with MB Medical. So we've done lots of free live clinics, which are all available on demand. So there's our one about optimizing asthma care and thinking green. There was our migrant health one and one on safeguarding as well. Do check out those. We've got loads of live courses coming up over the next few weeks as well. So um, the diabetes course, our um, hot topics course, our fantastic new course on managing overweight and obesity as well. All of that's coming up in June. Don't forget, you can always contact us on the podcast, email hottopics at mbmedical.com or on Twitter um, at GP Hot Topics. And just as a final thought, if by perchance you're going to the zoo next week, 
don't lick a monkey. Be safe out there. Bye-bye. Playing us out tonight, it's the Monkey Pox song. I got fever in my head, I got chills to the bones I thought I had COVID, I, this isn't wrong I'm sweating it out, I soak my pajamas I'm covered in spots, it's driving me bananas And the zookeeper, he told me to keep back I shouldn't get close, I might catch that The spots in the arms could do me some harm And now I think I've got Monkey, 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 monkey pox Monkey, 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 monkey pox Monkey, 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 monkey pox Monkey, 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 monkey pox Yeah! (laughs) That took me three hours less than the other one to record.